This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 415. biggest challenge that we've got in this world today is egocentric leadership. And no amount of technology is going to solve that until we learn to take ourselves off the center stage and learn what it means, you know, to truly be servant-hearted and have a servant mindset and think about the good of others and not just myself. Never before have we had access to such stunning technological advances or time-saving tools, yet we are still exhausted, overwhelmed, frustrated, and empty. Hey, thanks for being here. This is the Read to Lead podcast, and my name is Jeff Brown. It's the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where each and every week we sit down with another successful and inspiring author, and we dig into his or her latest book and their unique insights on a number of topics related to that book. And the reason we focus on books is because I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, then intentional and consistent reading is a must. My guest today is someone I've had the chance to get to know over the last five or six years. His name is Dr. Sunil Raheja. He's author of a book called Dancing with Wisdom, A Sacred Quest to Restore Meaning, Purpose, and Fun to Your Life and Work. I'll be asking Sunil about how with more information than ever available to us at the drop of a hat, how do we get our head above it all and leverage wisdom, what a healthy amount of ego looks like, the four vital questions that help get to the essence of wisdom, and lots more. One of the things I love to do is train teams in the areas of personal and professional development. It's something I've been given the opportunity to do even more since my book came out last August. I've had the chance to speak to a team at LinkedIn, a group led by former vice president of Disney's Magic Kingdom, Dan Cockrell, the team at Docket, a company called Anvil, and later this month, the Virginia Council of CEOs. Just this past week, I got an email from Eli, who runs a construction company in Pennsylvania, And yesterday, we confirmed that in May, I'll be heading to Pennsylvania to spend the better part of a day with his team. I'll be walking them through my dream big framework, the five habits that will supercharge your life. Excited about that. Excited about the opportunity to come see you too. If you'd like to talk about it, you can reach out to me directly, jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. That's jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Dr. Sunil Raheja is a blogger, podcaster, and coach. It is his privilege to work with senior leaders who feel stuck, empowering them to re-engage with deeper purpose and live a life in crescendo so their best days are still to come. Sunil has also worked as a psychiatrist for over 25 years. His new book is called Dancing with Wisdom, A Sacred Quest to Restore Meaning, Purpose, and Fun to Your Life and Work. Sunil, welcome officially to the Read to Lead podcast. Thank you so much, Jeff. And it's such a privilege and honor to be here with you. And uh, it's very excited about our conversation and, and this time we have together. Excellent. Well, this has been a long time coming. You and I scheduled this, what well, seems like months ago now. And of course, let's see, we've known each other for several years. I believe you were one of my coaching clients back in the day, uh, podcast coaching clients. You're absolutely right, Jeff. Uh, I can't remember, a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> We basically, you very kindly helped and supported me in test, in t- entering the world of podcasting. Mm. And so I'm very grateful uh, to you for that. And uh, wow, yeah, that, that was a number of years ago. So thank yeah. you so much for it as well. Yeah. It's been a while. And then we met in person at a conference. I happened to be speaking. You, you weren't there because I was speaking at it, but I just happened to be speaking at it. That's uh, right. You came yes. all the way from London to Columbus, Ohio. 
That's right. The Igniting Cells Conference uh, with our mutual friend, Carrie Oberbrunner. That's right. Yeah, he's been on the show a few times. And I always enjoy having on an author who he has helped launch a book, as he's done with, with yours. So let's That's dive right. into this, this quest, uh, so to speak. Yes. Uh, but before we dive into the book specifically, I thought I'd ask you to share a bit about your journey uh, that went from uh, starting by studying medicine and, and then moved yes. to this area of, of positive psychology. Yes, it's quite an amazing story. And I, I sort of joke that uh, it proves to me that God's got a sense of humor. <laughs> when I think about my life in a way. Because I went into medicine uh, as a raw 18, 19-year-old, knowing nothing about it. And it was the classic Asian kid who not sure what to do and think, well, medicine's helping people, I go into that. But to be quite honest with you, Jeff, I was temperamentally and personality-wise unsuited for medicine. Mm. You know, it, it was treating human beings as machines. And we need, you know, people who take blood, who know how the liver and the kidneys work and the lungs. And we need, you know, don't get me wrong, we need people who, who, do, who do those things. But it just wasn't me. <laughs> and by by the grace of God, and I would say semi-miraculous, I, I, I got through. I mean, the only exams I passed first time were finals. But I found a niche in psychiatry because what I really realized is that I'm endlessly fascinated by people, why they do what they do, mm. what makes them tick, not heart-wise, but in terms of their motivations, in terms of why they do what they do and, and where they're going. And human beings are endlessly complex and fascinating. But one of the things I discovered, and you know, going to your question really, was that so much of life is we're always looking at what's wrong. So in medicine and psychiatry, we look, we focus on illness and disease. And again, we need to do that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not knocking it. It's really important. But the issue with that is that, you know, health is not the opposite of illness. It's qualitatively different. So the things that make somebody sick, for example, mentally, physically, psychologically, are not the opposite of what makes people healthy. Mm. You know, and we, we know that in physical health, you know, in terms of eating right in terms of exercise, in terms of social relationships and all these right. kinds of things. And positive psychology, in a sense, is much more interested in the areas of what makes people thrive and flourish and grow. And that's what I actually realized I'm actually more interested in rather than the disease and sickness side. Well, when it comes to, to wisdom, I, I tend to think or define wisdom myself as, as knowledge in action. You know, you've, yes. you've probably heard the phrase knowledge is power. I, I don't agree with that. I, I think you got to put it into action before yeah, applied knowledge is that. Yeah. So so how do you define wisdom in the book? Is it similar to how I define it or or is it is it deeper than that? Well, I think this issue is, is wisdom. It's such a fascinating subject, really. I mean, I've, I've written a book on it. But the point being as well is, you know, I sort of think of it like a diamond. And when you think of a diamond, you can look at it from different facets and different angles. And you, you in a sense, never get bored and tired of it because there's always a new nuance, another way of looking at it. Mm. I mean, to start with, you know, you talked about as, you know, applied knowledge, that, that's a good place to start. Skill in living, how do you actually ma mastering life? What does it mean in terms of, um, you know, if, if you take, if, if science is organized, is, is organized knowledge, then wisdom is an organized life in the fullest sense of the word. Mm. It's the path to the success, satisfaction, and significance that we all long and crave for. Mm -hmm. But I think also, but it, it goes much, much deeper because we come to wisdom because we think I've got this problem that I don't know how to fix, or I don't know how to sort out. And so it's, I need something beyond myself, outside of myself, maybe another person, another resource, maybe God, whatever. But it's what I'd say, it's, you know, they're timeless truths that connect us to the best version of who we are and who we long to be. I mean, but that's just only the beginning. And, and those are just some aspects of it. But, you know, it, it's not something that you, you can sort of just tick off and say, well, I've mastered it or I understand it because it, it's a continually growing and, and evolving wondrous subject. 
And I think there's a tendency to think that the wisdom comes to the most qualified or the, the most worthy, mm-hmm. but, but you yeah. don't agree with that at all, do you? <laughs> yes. That's, obviously, that, there's knowledge and there's information, but I think the wisdom comes to those who are most humble and those who are most hungry to find it. Mm. So that's, I think, a, a really key, as it were, insight. It's certainly applied knowledge, but it's, it's much more than that. And mm. it's as much about who I am as what I do. And ultimately, I would say it's, it's it, because it, it raises big, big existential questions about why am I here? What's the purpose of my life? Where am I going? What happens when I die? You know, these are big questions. And so it as well, encompasses the whole person and all, 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 as I said, timeless truths that connect us to, to the best version of who we are and who we long to be and what we aspire and long for in life as well. Mm. well we live in an age, uh, obviously, where we're bombarded with so much information. Yeah. I think I read in your book, when it comes to decisions, we, we make on average about 35,000 of those a day. Yes. Uh, but w- with more information available to us, than ever at the drop of a hat. How do we get our head above it all to leverage yeah, wisdom? Exactly. And I think it's become a more and more pressing issue in, in our day and age, because in the past, we'd say, well, we haven't got enough information on this subject, so we need to go and research and find it. <laughs> and you'd go to the library or you'd have to find some expert and maybe get a telephone and ring them up to get that information. Mm. But now we have, as you know, oodles and oodles of it at our fingertips. And, you know, and we have this data overload. The question is, sorry, what's your question? Just go, go back to, to, to your question to me again. Just, yeah, yeah, just to get our head above it all uh, yes. to the point that we can leverage wisdom and kind of yes. get out of all that. That's right. And so I think, a, a first of all, is in a sense, is, is stepping back from all the information. There's a, there's a wonderful quote from Einstein who says that the significant problems that we face cannot be solved at the same level of thinking we had when we first created them. And so we need, in a sense, to get out of if you like, the jungle and the morass of, of the data and information and stand back and pause and think mm. and reflect. Um, that's certainly the first step mm. to do that. You know, the, the, was it the, one of the definitions of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different mm. result. <laughs> and so often we see in life that people doing the same thing again and again and again, thinking that somehow things will change. But the problem is, I think, so often we don't take those initial steps to stop and pause. And because we've got data and information coming at us all the time, literally it is, you know, through the internet, it's 24 seven, unless we switch off that noise and that chatter, we're not able to, as it were, hear the still small voice mm. and as it were, turn down the volume to think actually, well, what is the most important thing here? What is, as it were, what is the next step? You know, we might not see the whole staircase, but what is the very next step I'm called to do in the here and now because so much I know there's so much mind chatter going on Mm. about things to worry about in the future maybe regrets on the past whereas all that we've actually really got is this present moment and to make the most of the present moment that we have Mm. I like that that metaphor turn down the volume Um, in the second chapter a chapter that uh, Sunil calls wisdom of the mind he calls out the dangers of unchecked disappointment what are some of the things Sunil that we need to watch out for with regard to unchecked disappointment. I think that's so pertinent in our Western world, really, because mm. we've, we've been sold or, or, or we've told ourselves and the media and culture around us is an advertising pushes as well. If you have this, you get that qualification, you get that job, you get that relationship, you get this, that, that money, you get that prestige, that fame, that power, then finally you can relax and you'll be happy. But, you know, disappointment 
arises when from the expectation that we would finally be satisfied and realize actually no i'm not you know mm. i i hit that when i was um about 36 uh, i mentioned that in the preface of the book on the outside it appeared to have everything going for me 11 years happily married third child born very happy you know very thankful for those things i reached a po- post as consultant psychiatrist in, in 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 the job that i had after many many years of striving to get there uh, i was co-leading um, a non-profit a church at that time um and on the outside everything appeared to be going well and yet jeff you know if, if you were to ask me how i felt at that time it was a profound sense of disappointment that mm. that something's still missing something's lacking and i think you know and it's interesting actually um there was some some research from the national bureau of economic research and they said that unhappiness peaks at around the age of 47 48 so i had it a little bit earlier at 36 mm. this sense of i've arrived but now what you know i've been playing this story up to this point and that's actually quite a critical time i think and it's, the issue about it is it's very hard to talk about because everybody's saying oh you know you should be happy you should mm. you know you've got it made you've got it all and yet you know that, that there's a potential for despair for escapism you know we talk jokingly about the midlife crisis but i think it's a very real thing mm. uh, and then this sort of loss of perspective and this sense of uh, disillusionment and i think it, you know while it may not you know in some cases you know you do see the literal tragedy of depression even suicide but i think that the more insidious thing that can happen is a sort of a cynicism about life and a sense of well being there seen that done that and we sort of lower our expectations and we think well maybe i shouldn't hope or expect for too much and so there's this yeah this 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 loss of any real yeah excitement or reason for living really and you know thoreau talks about people living lives of quiet desperation and dying with their songs still inside of them yeah so it's from the mild to the severe but i think even so called mild cynicism is like a cancer that can really eat away at us and you know and that's part of the journey that i went through um looking back into you know in my late 30s early 40s uh, this sense of dissatisfaction i've got the things that i wanted to get but but but, but they're not there yeah my life lines right up with that study with that research i, I was 47 when i left my oh. job and started venturing out on my own i wished my unhappiness had peaked earlier about the time yours did <laughs> i wish it had <laughs> happened sooner but for me it happened right at around 47 years old so i i definitely identified uh, with that um related to my my previous question we were talking about you know all the information that we're bombarded by we're over informed but but you contend that at the same time we are under reflective as a civilization the most yeah. in human history what are some of the consequences of that under reflection in your view yes well i think consequences of that is that we're just doing 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 we're becoming human doings rather than human beings mm. we've got so much if you like literally wisdom and experience in the past you know although we have the technology although we can do amazing things you know you and i can talk from across the world and, and have this conversation and people will listen on the podcast from all over the world amazing stuff mm. but fundamentally as human beings we are unchanged we are the same people with with the same insecurities <laughs> the same ego problems mm. the, the same struggles with with different temptations and 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 issues that has not changed the way it manifests may be different but fundamentally we're the same people and um, and so you know and yet at the same time we have this myth in our heads which which western society has had civilization has had that this myth of progress that somehow or other or that, that we can advance technologically mm-hmm. and we will evolve and become 
you know, Homo sapiens. Why is humans is Homo sapiens wiser <laughs> and, you know, better able to deal with each other and be more loving and kind and respectful of each other. And we'll be able to end wars and we'll be able to end conflicts and everything will be wonderful because we'll have evolved into these amazingly wise humans. And yet mm. so far, you know, what do they say, you know, one of the great lessons from history is that we learn nothing from history. <laughs> that's, I mean, it's sad but true. You know, that, that's that's where we are, really. Mm. Unless we hunger and thirst for wisdom, that's that's the caveat I'd say. Unless we hunger and thirst for wisdom, right? Well, you mentioned egos. Uh, I want to dig more into that if we can. In our quest for wisdom, why is it that ego can cause such great problems, not only in our own lives but but in the lives of of others? And is there such a thing as a healthy amount amount of ego? I would imagine there right. is. That's right, because you know when you say somebody's got an ego, you're not you're not saying that as a compliment. You know, he's got an ego, she's got an ego. Yeah. But the fact is, we all have egos. All of us have this sort of sense of preoccupation with self, and there is a place for preoccupation with self. You know, I've been given a life, I've been given a body. That you know, the only person that I have maximum control over, ultimately, and even that is I struggle with, is myself. Mm. And so, it's having that healthy balance of ego. The problem is. So often we see the negative effects of that, and we see that you know that one one of the um, definition I think from Tim Keller is a ruthless, constant, unsmiling concentration on the, on the self, so that everything is about me. I, I I'm interpreting everything through the lens of how does this make me look? What are, what are people thinking about me? And that kind of preoccupation in 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 a two year old is is quite cute, you know. For <laughs> a two year old, it's lovely. But in a 32-year-old or a 42-year-old, it's downright ugly. <laughs> so the question is, how can I recognize when my ego is stepping the line? When am I, as it were, having an unhealthy preoccupation with myself? When am I actually trying to, as it were, looking at other people in relationships as a means to my own self-gratification or my self-aggrandizement as well? And I think you know, we can see that in things of when we become defensive, when we start comparing ourselves to others, you know, am I ahead? Are they ahead of me? Are they be, or beneath me? This desire to impress or to, or, or to look good, these kind of things that can be hugely unhelpful and, and in a sense cause so much of the problems in the world. Because, you know, you, you could argue ultimately mm. that the biggest challenge that we've got in this world today is egocentric leadership. Mm. And no amount of technology is going to solve that until we learn to take ourselves off the center stage and learn what it means, you know, to truly be servant-hearted and have a servant mindset and think about the good of others and not just myself. You mentioned the need to develop the wisdom to recognize when our ego is, is out of control. Maybe expound on that a bit. How, how do I know my ego is winning? Are there telltale signs that I can, that I can watch out for? Yeah, I mean, you're talking about in terms of this, as you said, this ruthless, unspining concentration on oneself mm. uh, and this preoccupation with oneself. And so this inflated view of oneself, then when it meets reality, how does it respond? Somebody criticizes me. Am I then quick to, as it were, criticize them back? A New Testament writer, James, talked about being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Mm. And am I able to stop and say, well, okay, maybe that criticism was unfair, but what's the grain of truth in that? Mm. What is this trying to tell me? Um, so often, you know, so, so certainly, you know, this, this defensiveness, when I'm trying to compare myself to others, and I alluded to this earlier on, this is that, this is that sort of unhealthy pride. And, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about the fact that a group of thieves can be doing some terrible things in terms of stealing and, and money laundering or whatever, but they can still be friends. But a group of proud people can never, ever be friends because the moment one of them slips, 
then they're out of the group. Mm. And so this comparison, am, am I making a good impression? What does Jeff think of me? You know, will people like this? As opposed to, well, you know, humility is, is not thinking less of yourself, but mm. thinking of yourself less. So we're so, as it were, preoccupied with, with doing the best we can to help as many people as we can, to serve as many as we can. It's not really about me. I, I get my joy and my, like my kick, my buzz from, from serving and giving to others. And I find that in giving, I receive back rather than feeling I'm the one who needs to receive and I'm the one who needs to be the center of attention and have everything. Well said. With regard to my next question, you refer to this in the introduction, but then dedicate a chapter later on to the four vital questions that help get to the essence of wisdom. And I was wondering if you could maybe unpack that for us. Yeah. And they're huge. Yeah. Thank you, Jeff. They're huge questions because as I said earlier on, you know, we start with wisdom because we've got a problem that we're struggling with and we don't know quite how to get out of it. Maybe a relationship issue, maybe a health issue, maybe something at work that we haven't got the skills to deal with. Mm. But actually, they're the four biggest questions that are, that are, as it were, at the center of life, that are always there at the back of our lives that follow to the very end. So the first is being, you know, who am I called to be? So this whole issue of, of identity. And we answer that at, at different stages in, in, in different ways. You know, earlier on, it's, I'm the child of my parents. I'm a brother or a sister. You know, then we go to school and education and we go into a career and doctor, lawyer, podcast host, whatever, you know. But what is, what is that core identity that, that I can hold on to? You know, there's a famous doctor called uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he said that most doctors will have written on their tombstone, born a human being, died a doctor, which is just a one-dimensional identity. Right. But, kind of identity can actually hold me through all of life because we lose so much of so the being than the relating and so, so, so and be, we're ultimately human beings being precedes doing so being then relationships we're made for a relationship mm. but in this day and age you know we've got the relationships with family and, and friends but you know in this internet era and, and the connections that we have how do i relate to others in this amazingly connected world where we can have relationships right across the world and then from there the doing Doing comes after the being because we're human beings first. Being, relating, then doing. What am I called to do that no one else can do? Where's my strength? And so often in school, you know, at school, the focus is what what are you weak at? And let's get your weaknesses better. But, you know, I I think it was John Maxwell who says that if you're a seven or eight at something, if you work hard, you you can become a nine or a ten out of ten at something. But if you're a three or two or a three at something, you work hard, you might just get to be a three or four, just (laughs) mediocre or below average. So... I think particularly for us in the West, where we have so many resources and opportunities, you know, how can I, as it were, do those things that I can excel at? You know, there's um, in our favorite book, it talks about the good works that we've been prepared in advance to do, Mm. Um, finding those as well. And then ultimately the leaving. And obviously the big question of leaving, how do I finish this life? And I very much believe that our best years can be ahead of us. These big existential questions of why am I here and where am I going? And what comes after we leave this earth, but also leaving in the sense of transitioning from a job, going into a new chapter of life. Those are the big four questions of being, relating, doing, and leaving. I love it. I want to ask you a couple of questions, not directly related to the book. Before I do that, anything else, Sunil, from the book you want to make sure we, we know? Yeah. I mean, I suppose the biggest thing, I, I called it a sacred quest. And I really want to emphasize that really, because um, this is, you know, wisdom demands from you far more than, than you bargain for but it promises you much more than you could ever dream or imagine or expect. Mm. 
So there's a scary part to wisdom because I think ultimately wisdom leads us to a person. Um, I think, again, it was Einstein who said the most important question we need to ask ourselves is do we ultimately live in a friendly or a hostile universe? Mm. And wisdom would say, actually, the center of the universe, God, has got your back. You, you and I, people of faith, and, and the Bible would say that that is a person in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, mm. And he's done that by giving himself for us on the cross. And you know, I've given that in, in, in two sentences, but there's a huge depth and richness to that because the promise of wisdom is ultimately shalom. And shalom is a Hebrew word, which means complete well-being. And we started this issue about positive psychology, this conversation, and flourishing. Well, I think shalom en- encompasses flourishing. And the best definition I've come across for shalom, and just get this, just Jeff, I mean, this, 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 this will blow your mind. It's, it's wholeness for the whole person for the whole of life, extending to the whole of the cosmos. Mm. Now, you can't get more encompassing than that. <laughs> and ultimately, that's the promise of wisdom. I mean, it's scary, but it's just so exciting because, in a sense, that's the future that, that wisdom is promising us. That's the shalom that, that, that we're promised. If we will go, as it were, go along that path to, to all that wisdom has for us. Well, uh, I know you're an avid reader. Uh, and you cite a lot of the work of others in your book, as any great author uh, does. Over the course of your career and your life, Sunil, what have been some of the most impactful books that, that you've read? Yeah, so you're right. So many. There's, there's so many. Um, just thinking about it, I'd say, well, the first actually was at the age of 19, I picked up and read the Bible for the very first time. So unlike a lot of your listeners, I had no understanding of, of the Bible whatsoever. I was, I'm from a Hindu tradition and background. and Lots of great things I learned from that, but I'd never read the Bible. And suddenly I, I realized this is actually the source and key to Western civilization. Why is the West progressed and developed so much? And so much within that just completely gripped me. But maybe the biggest thing that gripped me was the fact that in so many other religious traditions and other books, you, you'd hear about the heroes doing great things and, you know, be noble, be, be strong, like, like these other characters in, in these other traditions. But within the Bible, I, I read that apart from God and Jesus, Everybody messes up. Everybody, <laughs> everybody blows it. The only, as it were, the only hero is God. Hmm. And that just completely blew my mind. I'd never read it. So I read it with completely fresh eyes. Hmm. I think so many Western people, because I, mean, I think more of our age rather than the younger generation, because I think it's become diluted more and more in successive generations. We're so familiar with it. We just don't realize just what, what a radical and life transformational book it is. After that, I, the, the other ones I was thinking is I picked up The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by um, Stephen Covey in the, in the mid-90s. And what amazed me about that book, it, he was someone who was able to bring the business world with his faith and do it in a way that was integrated and, as it were, consistent. And that really had a profound impact on me. And this idea that actually I can have a... Um, I have agency in my life. I don't have to be at the mercy of, of other things around me. I can choose. Mm. I shall give you two more. And, 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 and he, he alludes to it is, is, is Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And Dancing with Wisdom is very much my take on logotherapy, which is this issue that we're all meaning-searching creatures. Mm. And then the other book that, that really hit me, was uh, I read it when I turned 40, was a book by Gordon MacDonald called The Resilient Life. And what challenged me about that was that hitting middle age and thinking, as many of us do when we hit middle age, thinking, well, have I really achieved what I wanted to do? And, you know, looking, getting older and thinking about the future. And he gives this lovely analogy of the marathon runner who aims to finish the marathon with a sprint. Going back to the Bible, people in in, in the biblical scripture, a lot of them that God uses are in their 60s, 70s and 80s. 
Mm. And he said that we should be pacing our lives so that our most productive and fruitful years are in our 60s, 70s, and 80s. And then we should go out with a sprint because as people of faith, we know that our eternity is secure. And so, in fact, this life is the warm-up for the life to come. So this is the whole issue about living life in crescendo, Mm. is actually the best is yet to come, and that's always ahead of me. Rather than, as unfortunately, as people of our age and older so often talk about the good old days and the past and live in the past. No, no, no. We're living in the future mm-hmm. and, and we're looking ahead to, as I said, you know, that the best is yet to come. Mm-hmm. So, th- so I think those, those, those books, uh, yeah, The Bible, Seven Habits, Victor Frankl's Man, Such a Meaning and the Resilient Life by Gordon MacDonald. Awesome. Well, his name again is Dr. Sunil Raheja, and his book is Dancing with Wisdom, A Sacred Quest to Restore Meaning, Purpose and Fun to Your Life. And work, Dr. Sunil, thank you so much for being here today and sharing from your book and about wisdom. Uh, So glad that you decided to put all that you have learned and experienced over these last few decades in a book. We are the better for it. So thank you once again. And thank you so much, Jeff. It's been a real honor and privilege to to be here with you today as well. Thank you. Some great book suggestions there for sure. Resilient Life, Man's Search for Meaning, Seven Habits, The Bible. You can't go wrong with any of those. I've linked to each of them on my website, and there you'll find a summary of today's conversation with Dr. Sunil, as well as a couple of ways you can connect with him directly if you like. It's at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 415 for episode 415. Remember, if you're looking for a speaker for your next event or someone who is able to come in and train your team in the areas of personal and professional development, I hope you'll reach out to me. My email address, jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. In the coming weeks, we'll be welcoming Mark Miller, the Executive Vice President of High Performance Leadership at Chick-fil-A. Also, Brian Moran and Michael Lennington, co-authors of the New York Times bestselling book, The 12-Week Year, to talk about their new book, Uncommon Accountability. Plus, Stephen M. R. Covey and his new book, Trust and Inspire. And soon, Marcus Buckingham and his new book, Love Plus Work. How to find what you love, love what you do, and do it for the rest of your life. All that and more coming up on the Read to Lead podcast. That's it for this week. Hope to see you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.